Today is Wednesday, August the 8th, the 220th day of 2018, with 145 days left in the year. And you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine on Channel Africa Radio from an African Perspective. A Zimbabwean court has released on bail 27 opposition supporters arrested by police last week on accusations of fomenting post-election violence. Magistrate Francis Vittorini granted 50 US dollar bail to the Movement for Democratic Change members. Violence erupted last week after President Emerson Nagagwa and his ruling ZANU-PF party won the national election. The MDC disputes the outcome and said the vote was rigged. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. The Harare Magistrates Court on Tuesday released 27 opposition supporters who were arrested and charged with public violence shortly after Zimbabwe's July 30 elections. Magistrate Nyasha Vitorini released 27 opposition party supporters on $50 bail each after refusing to be dragged into political arguments. It is alleged the accused persons joined several other civilians who protested against the management of the elections by the Zimbabwe Electoral Commission, ZEC, on the 1st of August and destroyed property worth thousands of American dollars. The opposition activists are being represented by lawyers Giftum TC, Kosam Nuve, Liz Wejamela, Denford Alimani of Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights, and according to the lawyers, the activists are mere victims of a state crackdown on MDC. Magistrate Vittorini warned prosecutors against bringing disjoined cases to court and ruled that they had failed to raise a logical argument to convince the court that the 27 committed the alleged crime and as such must be denied bail. Vittorini ruled that the grounds for arrest were baseless before the court, adding that the Zimbabwe Republic Police ZRP used the search warrant to access Harvest House in the capital where the arrests were made. Lawyer Giftim TC had this to say soon after the court session at the Harare Magistrate Court. Okay, the court has granted bail to all the accused persons. The court has indicated that uh, it did not consider any of them to be a flight risk. Uh, the judgment was so brilliant, we're still trying to process it. It, it basically confirmed what we had uh, submitted to the court, which is that uh, the accused persons were definitely proper candidates for for, for bail. So in essence, the accused persons have been granted bail, so they should be out before the end of the day today, provided that uh, payment of the prescribed amount of $50 is, is made before the end of the day. Deadly violence broke out in the streets of Harare on the 1st of August, and since then the military working with the police have launched a crackdown on the opposition leaders and activists. Cases of abductions have been reported and a number of MDC Alliance polling agents are either missing or have fled their homes. According to the opposition officials, all this is being done to frighten witnesses who could give oral evidence in the election result court challenge at the Constitutional Court. On one hand, political analysts as well as the USA and UK governments have all raised concern over the brutality being reported throughout the country. However, the presiding magistrate refused to listen to the submissions by the prosecution that the activists could face danger if released on bail. He hinted the cause had nothing to do with what was taking place in the streets. Gift him to see edit. Uh, I'm glad that the court touched on uh, the merits of the case and uh, highlighted the uh, glaring weakness of the state case, which we also highlighted uh, during our submissions. We have no doubt that uh, these people are going to be vindicated, these people are going to be acquitted. In fact, it is a waste of the state's resources to even uh, contemplate prosecuting these people, especially after the ruling that has been made by the court. If the court is wise, it must take heed of the brilliant uh, uh, judgment uh, that has been uh, delivered by the court because it actually highlighted a number of deficiencies which uh, I do not think the state is capable of curing them because uh, they are so glaring. Those people are completely innocent. The the court highlighted the manner of the arrest of uh, these people. In Arare, Zimbabwe, for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. 
Madagascar's political conflict has largely stabilized in recent weeks thanks to the mediation efforts of South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa, together with others in the international community. This is according to Lisa Lowe-Fordran, Senior Research Consultant of the Peace and Security Research Program of the Institute for Security Studies. The large Indian Ocean island, which has been beset by decades of political instability, is due to hold polls in late November or December this year. Earlier this year, protests broke out following the adoption of an electoral law that would have excluded both the president's predecessors and rivals, Andre Rajolina and Mark Ravalomanana. But after calls for President Harry Rajwanarampina Nina to step down. The Constitutional Court ruled that an inclusive government be formed and a consensus Prime Minister be appointed. Lisa Lofordran says Ramaphosa, as the South African Development Community's chairperson, has been working behind the scenes to help resolve the situation. The situation with Madagascar is very interesting because there was this uh, um, stalemate between the government and the opposition. There were mass protests in the streets in April and in May um, and there were even threats from the army that they were going to get involved because of um, the moves by the president uh, and um, and then his two rival you know there were moves by him and and some in the government to try and um, change the electoral law which would exclude then the two former presidents Ange Rajuel and uh, Marc Ravalomanana. So um, there was the standoff. I must say, I mean, South Africa has been involved behind the scenes for quite some time engaging with uh, uh, the president, um, notably the two special envoys who were then um, appointed officially by Ramaphosa earlier this year, former the former deputy um, minister of international relations, Ibrahim, and the former um, minister, Ruth Mayer, who is sort of an international mediator. So they have been involved, but I think the, the important step came um, here at the end of May, beginning of June, when the High Court in Madagascar ordered that uh, you know, a new prime minister should be appointed and a government of national unity and that elections should go ahead you know, free and fair, which um, this uh, decision came on the 25th of May. And now for the president to accept this massive change you know, in the uh, situation, uh, political situation, took some negotiations. So on the 1st of June, South Africa's foreign minister, Sisulu, with uh, her two special envoys then were in Madagascar. Others like the African Union special envoy, La Mamra, and the uh, International Organization for the Francophonie also intervened. So there have been various international efforts. It is a positive for the country which has uh, suffered for quite some time in terms of uh, political tensions in the country. But obviously SADC will have its hands full uh, trying to support uh, the peace process in uh, the country especially in the lead up to elections later this year. A key issue was uh, to convince uh, the president to accept inclusive elections and allow his two main rivals to run as candidates. I suppose that the big question is, has uh, the president completely buried the hatchet with his two predecessors and foes, Mark Ravalomanana and Andre Rajolina, because the long-lasting stability depends on uh, these leaders, doesn't it, uh, Lisa? Yes, absolutely. You're right. I mean, uh, Sadek will have to play a role, and it seems as if Madagascar is also... You know, willing to uh, cooperate and, and almost accept that SADC is the main organization that is involved there. They, I see in the newspapers today they're saying the president is going to the SADC summit next week, etc. Sure. Because you do have a situation where it's almost musical chairs. You have a small elite of leaders that seem to um, be involved in, in these leadership struggles. You know, in the early 2000s, you had Mark Ravalomanana trying to oust Didier Ratsirak, as the former, former president, and the whole country was then brought to a standstill. Then you had the coup by Rajuel against Ravalomanana. Ravalomanana fled to South Africa for a long period of time. 
then he was prevented from returning. Uh, then there was this animosity between the current president and Zavala Manana, and then Rajwal, who he was the coup leader since 2009. And then in 2013, when Sadek actually played a major role and said, okay, you need to have uh, elections now, but the two former leaders were not uh, allowed to participate. So the current president is sort of uh, was a compromise candidate. And the feeling was that the former president, Rajwal, then, who did the coup, he was almost backing the current president, who has now sort of turned his back on him and has decided, I'm going to go it alone and run for elections again. So you've got this configuration over many years, as you've said, where you've had um, leaders, rivals amongst one another and one of the issues in Madagascar is also the fact that you have a small elite that dominates uh, power um, and that it is not it doesn't really filter down to um, other groups besides this elite, uh, you know, group. Are you getting any sense that the perception of SADC in the country is changing in light of uh, this new mediation effort by Ramaphosa? Yes. Um, I think Sadek is also in a difficult position because a bit like in Lesotho, you know, where there's also a Sadek plan and a roadmap, the uh, countries tend to just um, accept mediation up to a certain point. So on the one hand, there is this accusation that SADC hasn't consistently stayed uh, you know, involved in the country to make sure that uh, after the 23 elections, uh, all these other parts of the roadmap are, are put in place. Um, but I don't think, your second part of your question, I don't think uh, relations have improved at such a point. That's Liesl Lulfordren, Senior Research Consultant with the Peace and Security Research Program of the Institute for Security Studies, speaking to Kumbela Munjelele. Channel Africa. Kultura Njoyif Addis Ababa. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. South African civil rights group Afri Forum says it is not targeting any political organization or the government when laying criminal charges against them. In the past four years, the organization has laid nearly 20 criminal charges against municipal managers, provincial departments, former President Jacob Zuma, as well as former ruling ANC Secretary General Gwede Mantashe for various alleged transgressions. Six of the charges were laid against the EFF and its leader, Julius Malema, for inciting violence, inciting land grabs, and recently for the firing of a firearm in a built-up area. Another 115 were laid against people allegedly inciting violence on social media. Lila Machnas reports. Deputy CEO of the civil rights group Afriforum, Arendt Ritz, says Afri Forum is trying to uphold the rule of law in the country and that is why they file criminal charges. It's true that Afri Forum has been filing criminal charges against especially influential politicians in South Africa and the fact that Afri Forum has filed so many complaints says more about those individuals than it does about the organization filing the charges. It's not malicious uh, prosecution uh, to file criminal charges against an individual who clearly acted in a way that appears to have been a crime. AfriForum is also a civil rights organization, and our aim is to uphold the rule of law. And when influential people, especially influential politicians, act in a way as if they believe themselves to be above the law, that is particularly something that needs to be addressed by civil society and by civil rights organizations such as ourselves. A quick Google search reveals that AfriForum has laid nationally eight criminal charges against government officials, including former President Jacob Zuma, since 2013. The charges relate mostly to corruption.
The civil rights group has also laid six criminal charges against the leader of the EFF, Julius Malema, and his followers since 2014, for, amongst others, inciting violence as well as inciting land grabs, as well as firing a weapon in a public area. EFF's national spokesperson, Mbueseni Ndlozi, says Afri Forum is targeting their party. In the absence of being able to do that, every day they follow the commander-in-chief around in terms of his activities and they just go to the police station to lay charges. Firstly, to try and disrupt us from uh, you know, paying attention to the destruction of white supremacy. Uh, but secondly, uh, from uh, mobilization and uh, consolidating the African Revolution. Ritz, however, does not agree. It is true that probably the complaints that have been filed by AfriForum would be disproportionately against Julius Malema and the EFF. But the only reason, therefore, is that Julius Malema and the EFF are disproportionately engaging in activities that appear to be criminal activities. Uh, so if they were to stop committing crimes, then we would stop filing charges against them. AfriForum has also laid criminal charges against the 115 people who incited violence on social media. Roots says the success of the investigation and prosecution depends on the investigating officer. He, however, says they will not be deterred and will continue with private prosecutions if the National Prosecuting Authority lacks the political will to prosecute, and this will include prosecuting Malema. The prosecuting authority requires a reasonable time to decide whether they would prosecute or not. And what a reasonable time is, we believe three months are reasonable. Um, But there could be a debate about that. But if they do not make a decision, then we could go to to, to the courts and to get a court order that instructs the prosecuting authority either to prosecute or to to, um, release a nolly prosecute certificate, which then implies that a private prosecution can take place. Political analyst at the Northwest University's Mahikeng campus, Professor Piet Kroukamp, says AfriForum uses a form of political opportunism to market themselves and recruit members when laying charges against corrupt officials. I think there's a lot of marketing in it. It's indeed so that uh, the more they appear in court, the more they appear in the media as, uh, and is seen as taking on corruption, taking on black government officials who are corrupt and uh, who are opportunistic and who are cadres and who are deployed and then as a consequence of their deployment, uh, inefficiencies uh, creep into the system. I think it's all part of the marketing system. Roots denied this but added that they do recruit members to strengthen the organization. AfriForum currently has 210,000 members. I am Lila Magnus in Pretoria. A stimulus economic package is top of the agenda at this week's cabinet Lekhotla meeting currently underway in South Africa's capital Pretoria. The two-day meeting will also discuss among others issues of gender-based violence and the ruling ANC's decision to support the amendment of the constitution to expropriate land without compensation. Pumzilem Langen reports. The cabinet Lekhotla comes against the backdrop of the release of unemployment statistics. These paint a bleak picture of the country's economy. The unemployment rate is increased by 0.5% to 27.2% in the second quarter of 2018, up from 26.7% in the first three months of the year. Communications Minister Nomvula Mokonyane says the two-day meeting will reflect on the state of the economy and its stimulation through the agricultural sector. Of importance as well is that uh, there is a determination not to reinvent the wheel, but to have a stimulus package that deals with issues of uh, a package that contributes towards agricultural support for food security, as well as uh, the productivity in the agricultural sector, the skills pipeline. The issue of land expropriation without compensation will also form part of the discussions. Last week, the ANC resolved to support the amendment of the constitution so as to find ways to expropriate land without compensation. Mokonyana says this remains key in reviving the economy and the cabinet will look at ways to support farmers. Already, 
The first is that of the release of uh, over a hundred uh, pockets of land that uh, the Department of Rural Development has already identified and the farmer support that would actually be also concluded here today, uh, over the coming two days. And we're quite certain we will be presenting to South Africans actions going into the next, uh, the sixth administration, but as well as the 25-year review of where South Africa comes from. Crime prevention and crime against women and the vulnerable will also form part of the discussions. We need to also give the necessary support to young women when they make a call. And, and the call made by young women has to be listened to. They can't walk in the same path and the same life experience of people like ourselves. We need to clear the space. Crime prevention and victim support also becomes important. It is something that we definitely have to really look at. The recent fuel hikes will also form part of the discussions. I am Pumzilim Langini in Pretoria. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revetua. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil élevé. Weya wema. What's in the happen Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Pulibanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, Zimbabwe, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. The African Perspective. This is DJ Cleo with G-Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. Bringing you the African perspective. It's 20 years since the August 7th bombings in the U.S. embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam in Nairobi. Survivors of the attack, as well as relatives of those who died in the attack, held a memorial service yesterday. At least 213 people died in the Nairobi attack, most of them Kenyans, at a solemn ceremony held in Nairobi, Kenya, which sent troops to Somalia in October 2011 vowed to continue taking the war against terrorism on the doorsteps of terrorists. Sarah Kimani reports. Joel Gitumbu Kamau, Teresia Wairimo, Ramadani Hussein Mahundi, One by one, the names of those who perished in one of the worst terror attacks in East Africa were called out as survivors held up their candles. It's been 20 years, but the memories of the attack are still fresh. While the pain may be gone, the scars remain. Julia Goye lost sight in her left eye. I was told they don't think I'd live beyond three months because of the toxics I'd inhaled in the body. They said there was nothing they could do about it. So initially, I expected to die. And it was not easy for me because I kept walking day after day, not knowing what would happen. I would lose balance. It was difficult because I wouldn't do things alone. I had to, somebody had to be around me all the time. And it was frustrating. Many here lost their loved ones, their livelihoods or their ability to work again. They have agreed to shed off the bitterness and start anew. Douglas Sidialo is one of the survivors of the Aga 7th bombing. I realized that anger and bitterness only but retards healing. So I started picking up the pieces and accept my blindness as a challenge. Despite the sorrow, I resolved to stand hand in hand in the fight against terrorism. Ambassador Robert Godek is a U.S. ambassador to Kenya. We say clearly and loudly that although we have suffered, we are not beaten. We will never let those who traffic in death and destruction defeat us. Kenya has since the other 7th bombing suffered several terror attacks, but the government says it is better prepared to counter violent extremism and acts of terror than that Friday morning 20 years ago. Martin Kemani is Kenya's special envoy on counter-terrorism. The threat remains, requiring continued vigilance, but our determined efforts have fundamentally blunted the ability of terrorist actors to destroy the fabric of our social, religious, and political life. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa.
Thousand people have been left homeless by the deadly earthquake that hit Lombok Island in Indonesia at the weekend. Those are the stories making headlines. United States President Donald Trump has warned countries doing business with Iran that they will be barred from doing business with the United States. The early morning tweet affirmed Washington's unilateral decision to reimpose sanctions that went into effect at midnight despite the objections of U.S. allies, particularly the European Union. The first of two tranches of sanctions snapped back Tuesday after the Trump administration's decision to walk away from the multilateral agreement that placed limits on Iran's nuclear program in return for reducing trade barriers with the Islamic Republic. Show and Bryce Peace reports. President Trump's early morning tweet confirming the Iran sanctions are back on with a further round due in November, while warning that anyone who does business with Iran will not be doing business with the United States. His Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Right now the United States is undertaking a diplomatic and financial pressure campaign to cut off the funds that the regime uses to enrich itself and support death and destruction. We have an obligation to put maximum pressure on the regime's ability to generate and move money, and we will do so. The U.S. says Iran's only chance of escaping the sanctions would be to take up an offer to renegotiate an even tougher deal with the Trump administration. But listen to Iranian President Hassan Rouhani's response. The first step would be for U.S. President Donald Trump to show that he genuinely wants to engage in negotiations to solve a problem. What's the meaning of negotiations when you impose sanctions at the same time? It's like someone pulling a knife to stab a rival or enemy in the arm while at the same time claiming we should be talking and negotiating. The answer in such a case would be to say, remove the knife from the arm and put the knife away. That person should come to the negotiating table and be logical about negotiating. EU countries have worked hard to keep Tehran in the deal, called the JCPOA, by promising to lessen the financial blow while persuading their companies not to pull out of Iran. Frederica Mogherini is the EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs. We um, are doing our best to keep Iran in the deal, uh, to keep Iran benefiting from the economic benefits uh, that uh, the agreement brings to the people of Iran because we believe that this is the security interests of not only our region, but also of the world. If there is one piece of um, international agreements uh, on nuclear non-proliferation that is delivering, it has to be maintained. China and Russia have been critical of the U.S. decision, while the United Nations also weighed in, but as usual stopped short of directly criticizing the Trump administration. The Secretary-General's Deputy Spokesperson, Farhan Haq. As you know, the Secretary-General continues to view the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action as a a diplomatic achievement and continues to encourage support for all governments for that, and we will uh, continue to do so. Washington believes that despite Iran's compliance with the deal, it does not go far enough to limit what it believes are Iran's destabilizing actions in the Middle East. So the waiting game begins. The measures that went into effect at midnight target Iran's purchases of U.S. dollars and sanctions, metals trading, coal, industrial software and the auto sector. The more tougher tranche of sanctions is expected in November and will target Iran's crucial oil exports. Washington banking on its economic might to win the day. The question remains, can the EU and its partners withstand the pressure and keep Iran on side? I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Imran Khan has vowed to tackle Pakistan's financial crisis as he prepares to be named the country's new prime minister. The former cricket star represents the PTI party, which failed to win an overall majority in the Pakistan election last month. Khan's close aide Shirin Mazari, who once advocated nuclear strikes on Indian population centers in the event of war, is tipped for the post of defense minister in the next government, a move that has been criticized in neighboring India. Rana Sen has more from New Delhi. Mazari, in separate public and published statements, has advocated specific nuclear strikes on Indian cities to deter a full-scale war. 
The former scholar will never have the final say even as cabinet minister, but Imran Khan's choice has dimmed India's hopes of a new era of peace with its estranged neighbor. The former cricket star has not yet announced his team, but South Asian strategic affairs expert Praveen Sahani called her a nutcase. Can you imagine the situation tomorrow where somebody who's called for the nuclear annihilation of Delhi shows up tomorrow on a visit as defense minister? What signal is that going to convey? The whole world is extremely worried about nuclear tensions in the region. Imran Khan bringing her into his cabinet, what message does that convey? Now, obviously, these decisions will not only be made by one person, but it's sending out a sign. Nutcases are very sweet, they're great fun, but nuclear nutcases are a very dangerous people. Khan, who has long shed his playboy image, has promised a new Pakistan and an end to corruption after claiming victory in the 2018 general election. The 65-year-old reached out to India after his party won 116 of the 272 seats up for grabs. But he soon insisted Pakistan and India, who fought two wars over Kashmir, must resolve their festering dispute first. Defense analyst Manoj Joshi warned against early hopes. Pakistan is not a failed state. Pakistan is a failing state. And it's failing towards infinity in the sense that it will only continue to be failing It will never be failed. And the characteristic of a failing state is that it has multiple centers of authority. We have to deal with multiple centers of authority to the way we can to manage them so that we can live our life here in India in peace to the extent we can. As I said, so it's a management issue. Diplomats say Western powers believe a stable Pakistan would be in the interest of the region. But former Indian ambassador Vivek Karju argued frequent border clashes between the two rival armies and spiraling unrest in Kashmir, which India blames on Pakistan, meant India must look out only for itself. I think uh, all this talk of the stability of Pakistan being in our interest, We need to examine it very, very acutely. I don't think we've done it in the past. We've taken it almost as a slogan. Uh, Yes, a stable neighbor is good. But a stable neighbor that is malign is that good. The charismatic captain who led Pakistan to a World Cup victory in 1992 now styles himself as a populist reformer. But if he really wants to tackle some of Pakistan's root problems, he may find himself on a collision course with the establishment as previous Prime Ministers have discovered. For Newsbreak, this is Zana Sen reporting from New Delhi. King Damase Mangaliso Damase's coronation follows his recognition as the King of Amampondo Asenyandini. He is the sixth monarch of Amampondo Asenyandini, or Western Pondoland. Damase came to power in 2008, taking over from his mother, the late Queen Bongoletu, who acted as regent following the death of his grandfather, Kyutan Damase. Various kingdoms from home and abroad, including Swazindebele and Zulu, are expected to grace the event. Eastern Cape Deputy Director General and Facilitator of the Coronation Committee, Matlubandile Kwase, says preparations for the event are at an advanced stage. As there is a partnership program between all the three spheres of government and the royal family, preparations towards the momentous occasion have already started and are at an advanced stage. We are expecting about 20,000 people to converge here from all walks of life and are expected to attend this event in those big numbers. In making his day a memorable success, subcommittees tasked with various responsibilities have been established and are in full operation. Kwasa has unpacked the processes of the event. The first part will be the traditional customary rituals performed by the royal family. The second part will be the king taking a special oath of office administered by a designated member of the judiciary. And the third phase uh, will be the president of the Republic of South Africa, His Excellency Mr. Cyril Ramaphosa, who will symbolically hand over the recognition certificate to the king in terms of section 9.1b of the Traditional Leadership and Governance Act 2003. King Damas's coronation is the second coronation since the dawn of democracy after Kosa King Bendulo Zoelwanke Sekawu. However, the Ntlapo Commission, in its recommendations, has declared that this is one of the six kingdoms to be discontinued after the death of the incumbent king. But spokesperson of Amambondo Asenyandeni, Chief Zolivumile Ndapane, 
disagrees. If we are still alive, we'll be here in the coronation of the heir of the current monarch. This is not a fly-by-night kingdom. It's a well-established kingdom. As we have heard from Mr. Kwasa reading the statement, he is the sixth monarch of Amambondo Asenyandi. I understand where you are coming from with your question. It's based on that Tlapo Commission declaration. We have challenged that. It is in court. As I have said, this is an established kingdom starting from 1845. So definitely, this is not the last one. I don't want to go much in this issue because, as I have said, it is in court. We are challenging it. The coronation will also benefit locals as road infrastructure, sanitation and health facilities will also be fixed ahead of the coronation. The event will be graced by dignitaries such as President Ramaphosa, Swazi Kingdom and Zulu Kingdom, among others. I'm Fundisom Tlekude at Nyande in a great place, Libode. A first-ever Global Aviation Summit is set to kick off in Cape Town today. A three-day summit, which is expected to attract 500 top-ranking representatives in the aviation arena from across the globe, will be discussing and addressing equality and gender transformation in the aviation space. The summit is hosted by the South African Civil Aviation Authority in cooperation with the International Civil Aviation Organization. Kamel Lochrenberg-Roberts reports. As the global aviation industry takes center stage during a three-day summit in Cape Town, professionals will be addressing delegates about their challenges and successes in the space. South African Airways pilot Fatima Yokut will be part of the delegation. Yokut has been a pilot for the national airline carrier for more than 10 years, but has also established a foundation to create awareness and develop skills in the aviation field amongst learners from grade 1 to 12. The Harvard graduate believes more learners need to be exposed to the possibilities within the aviation field. There's also a, a challenge uh, in the school curriculum, if I can put it that way, uh, that there's not enough exposure for, the, for, for our youth and our learners in order, order to pursue a career. It is seen as a strange, untouchable career, so, but we need to change that mindset. In addition to a hectic flying schedule, Yokut also teaches learners at the Cape Town Academy of Mathematics, Science and Technology. Some learners are keen to follow in her footsteps. Being a pilot is actually something that I'm very interested in, just the feeling of being in the air and the adrenaline rush. Ever since I was a little girl, um, my dad took me to an airfield and I was just talked for life. I loved being around them. It was exhilarating for me to be around airplanes. Air traffic control is also something that is seen as a highly qualified profession in the aviation industry. Manager of Air Traffic Services Cape Town, Katlejo Sipopa, says it's important that women know they are more than qualified to manage and work in such a position. I think it's more of an opportunity to sort of break down the misconception that females cannot operate effectively in air traffic control. The misconception really is based that women perhaps are not as assertive, as confident and are able to operate at a high high level, high capacity level. And we've shown now, I've been in the industry for 18 years um, and there's been women before me as well, shown that we are actually capable of doing it. The summit is aimed at unlocking finances and education for women wishing to enter the aviation industry. It ends on Friday. I am Carmel Lochenberg-Roberts in Cape Town. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lohoku. Good morning. The Central Bank of Nigeria has injected 210 million US dollars into the interbank foreign exchange market. The move is meant to boost the forex availability and also meet customer requests in various segments of the market. At the forex trading, the Central Bank of Nigeria offered 100 million dollars to authorize dealers in the wholesale segment of the market, while the small and medium enterprises segment received 55 million dollars. Customers requiring foreign exchange for invisibles such as tuition fees, medical payments and basic travel allowances, among others, were also allocated $55 million. 
The Commercial Bank of Ethiopia says that the daily forex exchange has shown improvement in recent days. The rise in forex exchange happened following Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's call for Ethiopians to avoid exchange of foreign currencies in the black market and rather take it to the nearest branch of Commercial Bank of Ethiopia. Now the bank says it's exchanging an average of between 4 to 6 million US dollars in a day across 1,270 branches in the country. This week, Ethiopian federal police claimed it seized $10 million as it was about to leave the country illegally. Ethiopia has been facing foreign currency shortages in the past few months. A plan by a Chinese-Australian company to mine a West African coastal dune for valuable minerals is causing friction. In southern Senegal, opponents of the project say the digging up the dune will harm the environment, as the BBC's Alex Duval-Smith reports. The shifting sandbank at Niafran has always brought surprises. Michael Colley shows me the remains of a hotel. He worked there until it was swept away by erosion. Now he's a rice farmer and marine reserve volunteer. So people are causing more problems. His job's to enforce the ban on fishing with nets in this estuary close to the Gambia. He protects the turtles when they come to lay their eggs on the beach. But the plan to mine Niafrong's mineral sand is his biggest worry. Africa's biggest mobile operator, MTN, has reported a 7% decline in half-year profit due to a lower contribution from associates and joint ventures. Headline EPS is the primary measure of profit in South Africa that excludes certain one-off items. Came in at 215 South African cents in the six months through June compared to 231 cents a year earlier. MTN posted a poster chart of post-apartheid South African commercial successes. The results were negatively affected by a hefty 66%. A diamond company, De Beers Botswana, plans to spend a whopping 160 million US dollars in its traditional festive season marketing, hoping the generally positive global outlook for diamond demand translates into bumper profits. The planned budget eclipses the 120 million dollars the diamond giant has been spending on its marketing campaigns every year since 2015. While De Beers markets its stones through various channels throughout the year, its campaigns traditionally reach a peak between Thanksgiving and the Chinese New Year, with the US and China representing key markets. Last year, De Beers clocked global consumer demand for diamond jewelry at $82 billion, a record in itself, an advancement or rather achievement that lent momentum for demand in 2018. The US dollar trades at 10.15 Botswana Pula. It's at 9.93 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, it's trading at 3.73 Brazilian Rail, at 63.51 Russian Ruble, and at 68.53 Indian Rupee, 6.83 Chinese Yuan, and 13.35 to the South African Rand. It's also trading at uh, 77 pence to the British pound, 86 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,213, platinum $830 an ounce. The price of Brent crude oil is at $74.65 a barrel from an African perspective. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update this hour, we begin with the cricket news. Cricket South Africa's general manager for cricket, Corey Fansale, says the inclusion of Nigeria, Ghana, Limpopo and Bumalanga to the Africa T20 Cup has been done to offer more opportunities to senior teams within South Africa and the African continent. The four new sides will join the 12 CSA affiliates, three associate members and five guest African countries. 
The tournament will take place over two weekends, over the 14th and the 16th, and the 23rd and the 24th of next month. We wanted to uh, increase uh, the Africa T20 Cup to 20 teams, and uh, that also gave us an opportunity to then, um, you know, increase the opportunities for the African com- countries. Um, it also gave us the opportunity to to give uh, two more South African uh, uh, provinces in Limpopo and Mpumalanga an opportunity. Um, so, with that expanding it to um, uh, 20 teams, it afforded us. Um, to, to, to have both objectives, you know, both those, those, uh, those teams that are sitting on the outside of, of provincial and senior provincial cricket, but also to give uh, more opportunity to the African continent. Fansail believes that this tournament will help grow cricket across the African continent, and even though small, Fansail is hopeful that it will become big in the future. I would say that probably not um, as marketable as as it, it can be, um, but this is only the start, um, and I think it's uh, critical that the game of cricket be marketed within Africa. It's it's part of the ICC, um, uh, you know, uh, objective to grow the game of of cricket in Africa, and this is a fantastic opportunity to do exactly that. And um, you know, like everything in life, it starts uh, probably going to start small. But uh, we, we, we believe it's going to grow and, you know, um, we, we believe in the, in, in the future of cricket in Africa. On to football news. Judgment will be delivered today on Amazulu, South Africa's premiership size application to prevent the start of the MTN 8 competition next weekend. The case is the latest in the saga that continues over Tendaindoro and Ajax Cape Town. Janet Whitten reports. Ajax Cape Town fought hard to get their place back in the PSL after being punished for fielding Tendai Ndoro in a number of matches despite his ineligibility to play. They finally gave up the fight, but as it stands, the awarding of those points to other teams and Ajax's relegation to the National First Division stands. But the decision affected other teams because when the points from the affected games were reallocated, Supersport found themselves up to seventh on the final table, and Amazulu dropped to ninth, and that means they don't get to play in the MTN8, which is scheduled to start next Saturday. Amazulu are asking for the tournament to be put on hold until the PSL's appeal against the Ajax judgment is heard. Janet Witten, SABC News, Johannesburg. And the South African senior women's national team, Banyana Banyana, have been in camp at the Nike Football Centre in Soweto, south of Johannesburg, in preparation for the upcoming Council of Southern African Football Association Kosafa Women's Championship to take place in South Africa starting at the end of this month. The training started on the 5th of August and will run until this Friday. Head coach Desiree Ellis has kept the bulk of the squad that did duty against Lesotho in the Afghan qualifiers in June. Ellis says she wants to win this year's tournament as she seeks to defend and go ahead prepared for the Afghan in Ghana in November. Well, it would be naive if we don't want to win it because, you know, we are the defending champions. But also, it gives us an opportunity again. Last year, we had an opportunity to look at, to bring in 10 new players. It gives us an opportunity to look at others and to make the pool bigger. And that will help us going forward to, to, to AFCON as well because I know we're talking about Kasafa, but you cannot at the back of your mind not think about the next step. And this Kasafa Cup comes at the right time playing a tournament type a few months before playing the f Ellis has announced a squad of 29 players which will be trimmed down to the required 21 for the tournament. But Ellis says it gives her an opportunity to look at other players and broaden the pool when she cannot have overseas-based players. We've seen certain qualities that we think can add value, but we've got to see if they can do it at a higher level. So we'll play them in the position that we've selected them and we'll play them in one or two other positions because it's important that we get the best position for them, um, not just for them but for the national team as well. Going to Kosafa you have 20 players, which is three goalkeepers. So you've got to have players that can play more than one position. This is a selection camp. Unfortunately, we couldn't bring the overseas players, base players in for the selection camp. But um, we are looking at selecting the best players that we have. So more players will join the campus. Finally, three-time major champion Jordan Spieth says going winless for more than a year has him under the radar as he seeks a career Grand Slam by winning the 100th PGA Championship. That's a Sport News this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Zimbabwe's court frees 27 opposition supporters. Efforts to resolve political crisis in Madagascar continue and U.S. President Donald Trump reinstates sanctions against Iran. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzo Lamagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327, or tweet us at Rise Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Dr. Alban with a song titled Hello Africa. Dr. Alban, the MD microphone doctor. This song is dedicated to the people of Africa. Swim mix. Give me some drums. Yo, African people, unite. Come together for the sake of your future. Yo, African people, unite.